0: We acknowledge that we are situated on and recording from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe in what is now called Ontario. We recognize that Maude comes from a land she referred to as Prince Edward Island, but the indigenous people of the area, the Mi'kmaq,
1: call it Ebegwet. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are commentary on the life, times, and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and are solely those of the podcast authors, their guests, or those participating in the podcast and do not represent those of the heirs of Ellen Montgomery. Hi there, and welcome back to M.O.D., books, babes, and barbiturates. I'm Jen. And I'm Steph, and we are launching into episode two, Does She Not Stand at My Elbow? So, throw on those puffed sleeves and toss that bottle of currant wine into your satchel. We're off to Green Gables. Anne is likely the reason most of us became Montgomery fans, be it the novel, the television series, or even the musical. Anne surely is, to most of us in the M.O.D. squad, our entry into the L.M. Montgomery universe. Anne became this living, breathing person, and it wasn't just us. It happened to Maud too, like here in January 1911. When I'm asked if Anne herself is a real person,
2: I always answer no with an odd reluctance and an uncomfortable feeling of not telling the truth. For she is, and always has been, from the moment I first thought of her, so real to me that I feel I am doing violence to something when I deny her an existence anywhere save dreamland. Does she not stand at my elbow even now? If I turned my head quickly, should I not see her?
1: Oh, testify, Maudie. When I realized in horror, probably around the time I realized that Santa wasn't, you know, that Anne was made up. I mean, I cried for sure. I remember that. And I got really anxious. Like, if Anne is not real, is nothing real? Is everything made up? Am I made up? Total third grade existential crisis. I started Young Squad and I started in hard and the root of my existential ennui was Maud, the lady who made up Anne. Anne of Green Gables was Maud's first book.
0: Yeah, that's right. While she spent her days teaching in PEI or grinding it out in Halifax at the Daily Echo newspaper, she was still tirelessly working on short stories and serials. But it was all leading up to Anne. We need to talk for a second about what a Christmas miracle it was for a woman with zero connections living in Edwardian Canada to get a novel published. Maud wasn't living in a big city. She was living in Cavendish, Prince Edward Island. Prince Edward Island is an island in eastern Canada accessible at Maud's time only by boat. In 1908 when Anne was published the population in Cavendish was 200 people once you arrived by boat, it was 18 kilometers from the railway, and then it was 39 kilometers to the actual town. Talk about isolation. Maud's town didn't even have an official post office. She and her grandmother ran the local mail service from her kitchen, and that gave Maud a golden ticket. She could submit her stories to publishers, and if she got rejected, no one in teensy little Cavendish would know. And when it came to Anne, she got rejections aplenty. She submitted her manuscript to many publishers, and after multiple rejections, she stuffed the novel in a hat box and let it sit. A year later, she found the book in the hatbox and read it again. She thought, not bad, it's good. So she sent it out one last time. Page and Company of Boston accepted it and a classic was published. This was the sea change of Maude's life.
1: Anne of Green Gables was reprinted 20 times by April 1910 and 38 times by 1914. When she received a copy in June of 1908, she was obviously thrilled.
2: My book came today, fresh from the publishers. I candidly confess that it was for me a proud, wonderful, thrilling moment. There, in my hand, lay the material realization of all the dreams and hopes and ambitions and struggles of my whole conscious existence. My first book... Not a great book at all, but mine, mine, mine. Something to which I have given birth. Something which, but for me,
1: would never have existed. Can we credit Maud with the original Canadian humble brag? Not a great book at all. Give me a break. Everyone was reading this novel, from the New York elite to Canada's Governor General Lord Grey to the farmers on Maud's beloved island. She was famous. But where did Anne come from? How did Maud write the novel she claimed literally possessed her? If Anne wasn't Maud, who was she? Maud had claimed Anne's physical appearance was inspired by Evelyn Nesbitt, the world's first supermodel. She was on the cover of Cosmo, Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar. She was an unquestionable babe, but we don't see Anne. We have her picture up in the show notes. Check her out. Evelyn was one of the first real-life people Maud connected to Anne. But why would Maud credit a woman she'd never met with what seems to be such a personal story? It all started to make sense when we did some extra sleuthing. You see, Maude Squad, at the same time Maud wrote Anne, Evelyn Nesbitt was in all the papers for her involvement in the crime of the century. Trigger warning squad, sex and violence. The stunning
0: model and actress, Evelyn, was groomed or courted, depending on how you see it, by a much older architect named Stanford White. He designed Madison Square Gardens, so he was basically American royalty, and she was a teenage chorus girl. White had a creepy apartment with an infamous red velvet swing, and he lured little Evelyn in. She reported that he allegedly drugged and raped her. Horrific. We wonder how much support she got. Anyway, soon after the incident, White's nemesis, Harry Thaw, married Evelyn. Unable to overcome his jealousy and anger about the rape of his young wife, in June 1906, Thaw shot Stanford White in the face on the rooftop of Madison Square Gardens. It was gruesome, and the story was everywhere, including all the newspapers which still came to Maud's house every day as she and Grandmother ran that post office. It's a bit of a mind bend to think of that story, that girl with her terrible, heartbreaking scandal being the physical image of our Anne. So she had this young girl's face in her head, but where did the story itself come from? Well... Maude was a vision board believer and scrapbook enthusiast before anyone had ever heard of Brene Brown. She would often clip quotes and pictures together, and this continued throughout her life. Uh, We put some of the scrapbook pages in the show notes. One such clipping was, couple adopt boy and get girl instead. And she held on to it for years. Many of us would slough this story off, but think about where Maude was coming from. She must have wondered, would her father have kept her if she were a boy? Would he have taken her out on the frontier with him? Would her grandfather have loved her unconditionally if she were a boy? Grandfather showed out-of-control favoritism towards her male cousins, including her contemporary, Murray McNeil. Murray easily won scholarships, and
1: with the support of his family, he could go to school for as long as he liked, and he traveled around the world. And then there was the matter of the McNeil farm, Maud's grandparents' farm, where she had grown up. Maud spent 13 years tethered to the homestead, ensuring a home for her grandmother and herself. Her grandfather's will stated that when Grandma died, the farm would go to his male heir, Maud's Uncle John. Uncle John's plan was to oust Grandmother while she was still alive and then re-give the farm to his son, Prescott. The men of the family didn't seem to care about where the women would go. This opened up a long battle for Maud and her grandmother, who had to defend their rights to stay in their own home. In all likelihood, if she were a boy, she would have been given the farm without any infighting. What would life have been like if she were Murray the Intellectual or Prescott the Strong Farmer? If this was your backstory, wouldn't you stick that Couple Gets Girl Instead article on the idea board? According to Alexandra
0: Heilbronn, an editor of the Lucy Maud Montgomery album, the inspiration for Anne was borrowed from a similar story Maud would have heard when she was 18. Maud's neighbors applied to an orphanage in England asking for two strong teenage boys to help on the farm. Instead of strapping lads at the station, they found two little kids, and their conscience wouldn't allow them to turn those kids away. Despite being similar to Anne's tale, Maud denied using this story as her inspiration. When I was rereading her journals, I was struck by a 1903 entry where she describes reading Nathaniel Hawthorne's The House of Seven Gables. Maud wrote about laughing and crying throughout, and she succinctly wrapped that novel up as a novel about a young girl who was brought into the gabled home of an old brother and sister, and the young girl becomes their joy. Inspiration for Anne would have come from many places, but there is no question for me that this book was part of the puzzle. Stories of families adopting children to help on the farm were commonplace in rural Canada. Maud would have been aware of the universality of these stories. She also probably related to the kid's vulnerable position, having practically been an orphan herself. Maybe these stories hit too close to home to admit a connection? Maud would go on for pages and pages of her journal, stressing the fact that Anne was not taken from the community. However, pages were filled with examples of setting, character, and narrative ideas that were straight out of Cavendish. This story was 33 years in the making. Maybe Maud didn't want to admit it,
1: but there was a piece of her in every character in Green Gables. Take, for instance, the gross but hilarious romance between Mr. Phillips and Prissy Andrews. You see, in going over the journals, it's pretty obvious that this story is based on Maud's own experience with her teacher, Mr. John Mustard. When Maud was sent to Prince Albert for that year with Daddy Dearest, he, and his not very kind wife, allowed Maud to be courted by her teacher, John Mustard. Her dad couldn't have been less subtle and at dinner would ask Maud knowingly to pass the mustard. Again, we always question the parenting choices of Hugh Daddy. Our Maud would never love a man named Mr. Mustard, but he would not take the hint that Maud was just not that into him. So Maud came up with a trick. Mr. Mustard would overstay his welcome for hours a night, wasting precious time she could have spent writing. So she would wait for him to use the outhouse and swiftly move the hands of the clock forward. When he returned, it was all, look at the time, and it's past your bedtime, Mr. Mustard. Good night. The only way she could shake this real-life Mr. Phillips was to move back to PEI. In reading Maud's journals, we can see shades of Gilbert and her childhood friends back in Prince Albert, Will Pritchard, and a local Cavendish boy, Nate Lockhart, who she fought for, top grades against. Maud said Diana was also a compilation of various school chums whose friendships faded as she got older. But we think the spirit of the friendship between Anne and Diana is most definitely the relationship between Maud and her real-life kindred spirit, Frederica Campbell. Frederica, who
0: went by Fred with an E, was eight years younger than Maud and a cousin, of course. As the Maud pod progresses, you will see that cousins are a major theme. It was her relationship with Fred that lifted her more than any other. Fred features most heavily in Maud's journals after 1908, when Anne was already published, but their relationship was deep and well underway during the time that she was writing Anne. Fred had become her bosom friend, who had the same values, who understood the power of lover's lane, a friend who could keep a secret, and a person with whom she could share the joy of all the colors and the spirit of a landscape. Fred knew all her sides. Things would be getting bleak with their grandma, or later on in Maud's life they would get dire with her husband Ewan, or with her writing, and Fred would show up, shazam, Maud would be happy again. The depth of their relationship is illustrated by this instance in March 1910.
2: Fred Campbell came up. I felt like a different being when she was here. We talked out all our difficulties and worries and they did not loom so blackly and menacingly when put into words. I think if Fred had not come to see me, I must have given up completely. What a great blessing faithful friendship is. For such friends, I say, thank you, God, with all my heart.
0: Maud said that with Fred, she rinsed her soul clean. And they always had room for a laugh. So much so that 50 years after Fred's death, the townspeople of Leeskdale, the Ontario town where Fred would visit Maud, they still remembered Fred. In The Gift of Wings, a maid remembers Fred as, quote, funny as all get out.
1: I mean, that's a legacy. She seemed to be able to shore Maud up help with the kids, and even calm Ewan. We read Maud's account of how supportive and fun Fred was, but was Maud as good a friend to her? We aren't so sure. The following aspect of their relationship are very much unlike Anne and Diana, because unlike Diana's marriage in the Sullivan film where Anne helps her through those pre-marriage jitters, Fred got married, and she didn't telegraph Maud till it was over. I was at Jenny's wedding, and Jenny, if I ever marry a hot fighter pilot six years my junior... You'll be at that wedding. Thanks, Steph. <laughs> You're welcome, Jenny. That's just what friends do, at least friends who are getting along. Was there an undocumented riff at this point? It was wartime, and who knows what was happening. Tensions could have been running high. Was it, as Dr. Mary Rubio suggests, that Maud thought Fred marrying Cam McFarland, who Fred had dated for a hot minute, would be a waste of Fred's education? Maude had made the excellent friend move of paying for Fred to go to school in Montreal, and now that she was to be Mrs. McFarlane, was that investment down the tubes? Rubio writes that Maude considered such quickie, wartime marriages not romantic, but a further casualty of war. In one journal entry, Maude reflects on Fred's marriage and on Cam himself.
2: The boyish husband who had caught her fancy in the glamour of his uniform and his overseas experience... Coming into her life at a psychological moment of loneliness.
1: Maud was self-conscious enough about being left out of the wedding that she lied about it in a letter to her pen pal George McMillan. She described being at Fred's wedding, like in detail. So we wonder, did Fred tire of always being the constant wingman and congratulating Maud on all of her successes? We can buy it. Maybe she wanted her wedding day to be the one time where she was the most important girl in the room. It must have been exhausting, shoring Maude up constantly. Jenny and I think about this a lot. As we've mentioned, Maud lived with depression, so it's not as if Maud could dial up better health and have a great Zoom with her therapist and then have a laugh with Fred. It sounds to us like Fred often played therapist to Maude, and don't we all do that? That's what friends do for one another. But we don't know Fred's side, and don't we wish we did? Did Maud become more intolerable the more famous she got? I've lived in Los Angeles. I can see it.
0: We know that Maude had a magnetic personality, and so did Fred, but did they share equal airtime? We'll never know, but something, at least at the time of that wedding, it was off. Unlike Mrs. Barry forbidding Diana to be around Anne, this break in the friendship seems to have occurred from Fred's side. But the absolute truth is this. These two women loved each other, and whatever obstacles came between them, they did overcome them. During the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, Maude received word while in Boston that Fred was sick. As quickly as she could, she jumped on a train to Montreal and she cared for her. She stayed by her bedside for days. Days until Fred slipped away one morning at sunrise, and she was only 35 years old. Maud was right beside her until the end, just as Anne would have been for Diana. It is such a heartbreaking section of Maud's life because without her bosom friend, Maud had no one to confide in and to connect to deeply. And Maud would soon need her Diana more than ever. But... Diana was gone. So let's rewind a bit. It's just too sad to linger around here. Let's take a look at Maud's engagement to Reverend Ewan MacDonald and we want to address the suggestion that Ewan's appearance in her life is what enabled Maud to write Anne of Green Gables. Mary Rubio suggested that Maud was finally in a deep and loving relationship with Ewan and from this love came the work.
1: We want to take a more feminist stance. Maude didn't need Ewan to create Anne. She was in her 30s and she'd been making good money as a serial and short story writer. She'd invested her 10,000 hours into this work. She was writing like a mad woman in her upstairs room during the summer and down by the kitchen fire in the winter. But Maud was 33. That's like 58 in 2021 math. She had no property rights. She was trying to care for her grandma all while fighting to keep them from being kicked out of the farm by her grandfather's greedy heirs. Orphans were a trendy topic at the time. Why not write what's selling, as Maude reflected in August 1907?
2: I found a faded entry written ten years before. Elderly couple apply to orphan asylum for a boy. By mistake, a girl is sent them. I thought this would do. I began to block out chapters, devise incidents, and brood up my heroine. Somehow or other, she seemed very real to me and took possession of me to an unusual extent.
1: We'll admit, maybe Maud's engagement to Ewan helped her write Anne, insofar as now she had a safety net, a sure thing under her belt. It's nice to think that Maud and Ewan were deeply in love. We hope there was a beautiful courtship, some sexy carriage makeouts, or whatever they wanted to get up to. We hope he swept her off her feet, and she him. We won't ever really know because of that deft razor work in her journals, but... What we really think is, this was less a relationship of romance than it was a relationship of convenience. A hall pass. Maud couldn't abandon her grandmother, so she would stay on the farm until grandmother died, and because Ewan and the Scottish Presbyterian community of Cavendish would understand familial loyalty, she would need no excuses to remain unmarried. Their long engagement gave her the extra time and freedom she needed. Truly, if she had married Ewan straight away, would Anne or any
0: novel have been written? Maude would have been launched into the 60 hour work week of being a minister's wife and without a smash hit novel under her belt and the paychecks that went with it would Ewan have been supportive of Maud's career outside the home. He couldn't argue with the money she brought into the marriage, but he was hardly supportive of her even with her books paying the bills. He used to toss her fan mail off to the side when he entered the house and he would slough it off saying under his breath, another mail for L.M. Montgomery. He was so mad that she never took his name professionally.
2: Ewan secretly hates my work and openly ignores it. He never refers to it in any way or shows a particle of interest in it. I certainly wouldn't want him to go about boring people publicly with his appreciation, but I I would like him to feel a little. I have never, since I was married, neglected any duty of wife or mother because of my writing. I have done it at odd hours that were squeezed out of something else by giving up some of my own possible pleasure and all my leisure. So he has no justification for this attitude. Without Anne
0: bringing in the major bacon, she would have had to ditch her writing. She was clever. She delayed the engagement and it was a good plan. It allowed her to plunk out her manuscript with the old typewriter that was missing those Ws and she would fill them in later by hand. And like those missing W's, the gaps between Maud and Anne grew wider as they both got older. Although Maud and Anne had both become mothers, it is there where their paths diverged the most. Maud had always wanted children. This was definitely part of the reason why she held on to that plan to marry Ewan. And she had Chester, her firstborn, when she was 37 years old. Maud had been terrified that she would die, and that was fair enough. The death rates from childbirth at that time were frightening. She paid for the nurses to come to the house, and she practiced a form of self-hypnosis to survive the birth, and it worked. She had been worried she would not bond with her son, but she did. She loved her little boy. All was well until Maud gave birth to their second son, Hugh, named after her father. Tragically, Hugh was a stillborn baby. You can read how this affected Maud in Anne's House of Dreams, when Anne and Gilbert's first baby, Joyce, dies at birth. Anne says to Marilla, It seems as if part of me was buried over there in that little harbour graveyard. And it hurts so much that I'm afraid of life. It was so heartbreaking as a reader to see Anne encounter adult pain and suffering. Of course, this was even more tragic when we realized it was sourced from Maud's own loss of baby Hugh.
1: But something odd happened soon after in the Anne series. As Anne and Gilbert's family grew and disappeared, she hovered around Ingleside like a ghost. Anne's children and the maids took center stage. This is opposite to how Maud's life looked. Maud was fully entrenched as the head of the family life. She had Chester, buried baby Hugh, and finally had her youngest son, Stuart, the golden boy. She became the center. She ran the house and those boys. It could be argued that Maud was the original helicopter mother. Nothing Chester and Stuart did went without Maud's opinion. She obsessed over their grades and the company they kept. Ewan, however, had very little to do with the boys. And as we cover in future episodes, Maud needed some help from a partner. It was interesting to us that Maud never wrote a well-developed mother character. She was one. In her novels, Anne, Emily, Pat, Jane, the story girl, think about it. The mothers are away, or sick, or dead. Like poor Clara, Maud's mother. The memory of the waxen cheek, a bit like a doll, was maybe why all the mothers seemed like figurines themselves. But Maud gave us brilliant caregivers who loved. Women who didn't have babies who still loved babies. Marilla, Judy Plum, Susan Baker, and Miss Stacy. These women, they did not give birth to the characters we hold so dear, but they loved them just as much and taught them just as much. Maud did not grow up in a nuclear family and learned early on that there are lots of ways to love. Maybe the world had enough mothers in novels, so she gave us funny. Caring, brilliant, childless women. Maybe Anne feeding and Susan Baker rising was actually a woke feminist move. Probably unintentional, Mod Squad. We know this. We just know she was writing what she knew as a girl. It's just something we think about.
0: As Anne rattled around in the background of her home, contrarily. Maude was at the forefront of her home with the help of a maid and also leading the community. The pressure for Maud to be in charge of ladies' auxiliary meetings and church picnics was because she was a minister's wife. I mean, it sounds exhausting just saying all that out loud. Maud once wrote to a pen pal, George MacMillan, quote, "Those whom the gods wish to destroy, they make ministers' wives." Here's the deal: The community who hired Ewan also owned the home that the family lived in. And because of this, The entire family, not just Ewan, were under scrutiny and expected to contribute greatly. The community might have been excited to have the writer of Anne in their congregation, but that didn't mean that they expected anything less. And Maude, of course, never shirked her duty. Rubio states in The Gift of Wings that even when she had to go and visit the congregation in the evening, she would bring her needlework with her, she'd go on the rounds. I like to picture her there, probably quite bored out of her mind, half listening, half nodding to the local gossip, and wishing she could just be writing and having to channel those frustrations into her new cushion or a wall hanging. She was asked to write an article for Chatelaine magazine in 1931. It's in the show notes, and it was called Open Letter from a Minister's Wife. It was basically telling people that the minister's wife was a tough job, and to please put your criticisms to the side. Whether it was how the home was decorated or how the wife did her hair, she wanted the community to recognize that she was a woman, just like any other woman in the community, and she was trying her best. We can only imagine she relished the opportunity to diplomatically air her grievances. Before she married Ewan, she was aware of the role of minister's wife as an outsider, but I would imagine she didn't know how relentless it would be and how little privacy she would actually have. She must have felt constantly under the microscope. And on top of that, she wrote many of Ewan's sermons when he wasn't capable, and she hid that from the community. She could have used some space from all the demands, but she never outwardly complained, and the communities she served do remember her fondly.
1: What is a certainty is that Anna of Green Gables was a nostalgia piece for Maud, which I never understood until I was older. It was just a general wash of the olden days to me. But in reality, she was in her 30s and writing about a girl in the late 1880s, when she was exactly Anne's age. These were her corn roast nights and halcyon days with a lot of orphan issues in the mix. And why wouldn't she want to disappear back into this time in her life? It makes sense, right? Rewrite it the way it should have been. Stern but loving adoptive parents. A town that changes because of the spirited orphan girl. The orphan girl doesn't have to change. It's a pretty magical do-over. But as much as these stories might connect Maud to Green Gables, we see now that Maud and Anne are not the same person. She was unlike Anne in the ways we've mentioned, but most notably, Maud was unlike Anne in that she was totally sexual and strung out on boys. She even said, If
2: I wrote what girls were really thinking, I would never be published.
1: And Maude wanted to be published. So the sensuality, especially in her teens and 20s, was saved for her personal writing in her journals. Maud as an erotic sexual woman was steeped in her novels. But you have to dig a bit. Don't waste your time with Gilbert or Teddy King or Jingle. I love that character name. You won't find anything. Look, Maud Squad, for LMM's odes to nature. The purple prose everyone loves to go on and on about. You see, Squad, in true Victorian, Edwardian writing, you couldn't long for a penis, but you could long for the peninsula. You're welcome. This came together for me after reading Irene Gammel's essay on Maud's erotic landscapes. Here is Maud looking at a hayfield in 1925. Keep in mind, it's just a hayfield, everybody.
2: Wave after wave of sinuous, glistening wave shadows were going over it. I have not seen just the exact effect for years. A flood of ecstasy washed through my soul. The mystic curtain fluttered, and I caught the glimpse of eternal and infinite beauty, which Emily called her flash. I fairly trembled with the wonder and loveliness of that supernal moment. Only a moment, but worth years of ordinary existence.
1: I'll have what she's having. This is The Flash from the Emily books.
0: As Irene Gamal explains, Montgomery's flash, as described in her journals, is so overt in its physical mimicking of female orgasm that she takes pains in her fiction to mask it physically under the guise of pantheistic ecstasy.
1: No wonder I spent so many hours reading the Emily series. But back then, sex did not sell,
0: especially if you were writing about an adolescent girl. Anne didn't worry about boys. She had her new family, best friend, and a school to rule, but we now know Maud was not Anne. Sure, she was equally as headstrong, quirky, and loyal, but unlike Anne, she was also a real-life boy-crazy Stacy and sexy, and sensual, fearless. And that's what we'll be getting into next week. You're going to want to put on your most revealing pinafore. I mean, hot times in lower bedeck, my friends. So hold on for next week, episode three, the most vital subject in the world. Hint, it's mod and sex.
1: Ooh, it's getting juicy. Bye, everybody. Thanks. <laughs> Bye, everyone. journal entries are read by Nola Augustson.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a
2: rating or a review. It goes a long way in helping us find a new audience for MOD.